Coming up on Tech Nation, Dr. Greg Frost, the CEO of Exuma Biotech. He explains how gene therapy for cancer is currently a six to eight week proposition and requires the patient to undergo chemotherapy. Is it possible to eliminate the chemotherapy and reduce the time to four hours? That's exactly what Exuma is working on. Then Dr. Chris Smith with Brandon Capital Partners and a board member for Ena Respiratory updates us on Ena 51, a spray to reduce the presence of flu virus in the nasal passageway. You can guess the next step, COVID. All this and more coming up on this week's Tech Nation. Let's take five with Moira Gunn. This is Five Minutes. In 2010, I spoke with Paul Ehrlich, the Bing Professor of Population Studies and Professor of Biology at Stanford University, about his book, The Dominant Animal, Human Evolution and the Environment. One surprising fact I learned from Paul Ehrlich's latest book is that Charles Darwin never used the word evolution. Yeah, it was a surprise to me when I learned it, too. And I had read the book when I learned that. It's just <laughs> yeah. a, Where is it? Where is evolution? It, you know, it's a wonderful book to read after you already know a lot about evolution because he was one smart guy. Uh, and I'm always finding stuff in it that most people think is more recent. For things. So, uh, yeah, Darwin's one of my heroes. He got everything pretty much right. Yeah. Uh, for for what they knew in those days, he got it as right as you could possibly get it. And uh, I think all of us still consider ourselves Darwinians, even though, of course, uh, a lot has been learned, particularly in genetics since then. That's the, the big area of change is we now know a lot about the mechanism, the exact ways the genes work, although we still get a lot to learn there, too. And if we'd never thought of evolution before, when we saw the genetics, we go, hmm. <laughs> oh, yeah. No. It, it is, I mean, it, one of the funny things is people say, well, it's just a theory. Well, it's like the theory that the Earth goes around the sun rather than vice versa. Nothing is ever certain in science. If, if I could show that Darwin was dead wrong and convince my colleagues I'd have a manuscript off to the journal Science tomorrow, and so would any other evolutionist, because that's how you, you, know, that's how you do well in science, is to show that the conventional view is wrong. So the theory of why they didn't have any ham at lunch today, is that's not a scientific theory. No, that's not a scientific theory. It certainly isn't your genes driving you to that. That's your, well, you can explain it as part of a, an evolutionary theory, but it's cultural evolution. In other words, we have, it turns out, a relatively limited amount of genetic information in our DNA. You know, when I first started out doing selection experiments on fruit flies 40-some years ago, 50-some years ago now, I thought there was hundreds of thousands or millions of genes. And that allowed us to explain it pretty well. Now we know uh, that in fruit flies, there's only something like 14,000 genes. That's a lot less than a million. And trying to figure out uh, how the genome, how all the genes work together, has become infinitely more complex. But just think about the complexity of our cultural evolution. I mean, you and I are victims of a culture gap. If we had been together, say, in a hunter-gatherer group, both of us would know virtually all of the non-genetic information that the group possessed. In other words, 100 percent of it. Very, very close. Some shaman might have a weird bit. There might be a little something <laughs> about herbs that some women knew that men didn't. And there might have been a hunting technique that meant. But basically, everybody knew everything. Now, I would wager, certainly I and I suspect you can't tell 
exactly how this microphone and that thing works. I mean, there's non-genetic information all around us and how the building is constructed and how so on. How these chairs are put together. Yeah, exactly. And or, or, you know, where this cup came from and how it was designed and so on. So now, not the smartest person, not the most knowledgeable person even has one millionth of the non-genetic information of their culture. And I think that's one of our big problems. We don't have that broad understanding that everybody, until 10,000 years ago, everybody had. What you're talking about is everything is evolving. Everything living is evolving and co-evolving. I think that's extremely important. Yeah, it's one of these everything affects everything else uh, situations. But the main thing that we've done is develop these incredible brains and develop this huge supply of non-genetic information. Now, there's culture in other animals. Chimps, for instance, do different things in different populations, and and they learn from their... Even some birds learn techniques. Oyster catchers learn how to open oysters from their parents. But no other organism has ever had the level of non-genetic information that we have. And that's what's made us the dominant animal. That's why we are changing the atmosphere. We've changed the land surface. We're ruining the oceans. We're spreading toxic chemicals everywhere because we're really ingenious and have developed this huge body of non-genetic information. The problem is, of course, what we're doing with it. You've been listening to a 2010 Tech Nation interview with Paul Ehrlich about his book, The Dominant Animal, Human Evolution and the Environment. While now retired, he's still a Stanford professor, the Bing Professor of Population Studies Emeritus. I'm Moira again. This is 5 Minutes. 5 Minutes is produced at the studios of KQED-FM in San Francisco. 5 Minutes is a production of Tech Nation Media. I'm Paul Lancourt. From San Francisco, I'm Moira Gunn, and this is Tech Nation. Today on Tech Nation, Exuma Biotech's Greg Frost explains how gene therapy for cancer, currently a six to eight week proposition and requiring the patient to undergo chemo, might be reduced to four hours and no chemotherapy. Then Dr. Chris Smith with Brandon Capital Partners and a board member of Ena Respiratory in Melbourne, Australia, describes Ena's work to develop a spray to reduce the influenza virus in the nasal passageway. Today, they've pivoted to COVID. Tech Nation is underwritten in part by MindK, a global software development force in a world where every business can be global, on the web at mindk.com. And now, Dr. Greg Frost. Well, Greg, welcome to the program. Thanks so much, more. It's a pleasure to be here. Now, to put a perspective on what we're talking about today, can you give us an overview about how we've approached the treatment of cancer in the last 50 years? Certainly. Well, I guess I would start at the beginning, which is that, you know, cancer from a scientific standpoint, as we know, it has been around for at least 250 million years. And of course, it's had a name since Hippocrates. But the efforts of humans trying to eradicate cancer has an equally long history. So, you know, up until, you know, the latter part of last century, there was really only three tools that we had developed over this time. And, you know, patients often thought of it as slash, burn, and poison. And while these actually have important places in medicine, we think of this as surgery, radiation, or chemotherapy. But 
you know, towards the latter part of uh, last century, we actually made some tremendous progress with things called monoclonal antibodies. And these are medicines that really changed to give us an additional tool that we had not had before. And the medicines that have come for this have been remarkable medicines, things like Herceptin or Rituxan. They really were Paul Ehrlich's kind of dream of what we called the silver bullet for cancer, of something that was precise, that could seek out a target on a cancer cell and block it very specifically without damaging normal tissue. But I think it's, it's notable that the early days of science, even with what we call the monoclonal antibody or MAB, were very bumpy. And in fact, many thought they would never survive or, or make it into a medicine. People over time learned how to make them safer by engineering the gene structure to make them more similar for humans and also how to put them in cells to take the genes out and grow them in cells in big steel tanks. And so this was something that really spawned an entire industry and is exciting because this was the transformational event that gave us one more tool in the fight against cancer. But if we step back and look, this technology is coming up 50 years old. And, you know, we have generics now of these. So technologically speaking, these are areas which we've made tremendous advance and made great medicines. And yet we still suffer today where we have patients that can fail even these targeted silver bullets. Back in the 1990s, people were also experimenting with very new therapies as well, things we call cell or gene therapies. And this was the thought of really living medicine, where we could take the genes that otherwise we'd grow in a steel tank and put them directly into the body so that the body could make its own medicine. So like monoclonal antibodies in the early days, cell and gene therapy had some very hard learnings. So the way that we would get this genetic information into the body was through the use of viral vectors. We would take viruses and re-engineer them to put the genetic information into the body directly or into a cell that would go in the body rather than growing them in a steel tank. So these viral vectors in the early days also had some tremendous challenges because of the safety or toxicity of the way we would get that genetic information in. The Jesse Gelsingers of the world or severe combined immunodeficiency patients, we would try to treat them and they would get very sick from these vectors going in. And for cellular immunotherapies in this setting, where the cells are modified outside the body, we truly experienced what, what I called back when I started looking at this in the late 1990s, we entered into a dark, dark period where the field almost completely disappeared. We had the very first cellular therapy, a cellular immunotherapy, where the first cancer therapy against prostate cancer finally obtained drug approval, but it was so complicated to make and the benefit so small, the company basically went out of business. So there were very you know, dark times for nearly 15 years where people thought this would never become something. But there were some basic glimmers of hope that came from this during this time of some small studies where people would take genetic information from antibodies and program them 
through a viral vector that had been improved from the first generations and could put that into those cells and reintroducing it into cancer patients. And like the monoclonal antibody, it would enable those white blood cells to find the tumor target. But then instead of just killing the cancer cell, it also sent a signal where they would replicate and duplicate themselves. There were several challenges that really needed to be solved. Otherwise, it would be very much a very fringe application that can never really realize its dream of, of contributing to cancer therapy. So we have several of these, we'll say, virus-based delivery systems. We have several of these medications approved mm -hmm. by the FDA today. How does that work if you are a patient receiving one? Well, these therapies, which all came and evolved out from these early experiments at academic institutions that did some phenomenal pioneering work, enable the white blood cells that must be taken from a patient at the hospital. And then today, they are shipped to a central manufacturing facility. And so what happens is that those cells, when they're received by the facility, each patient becomes a different product. They have to be taken into the facility, genetically modified with these viral vectors in the facility and grown in their own little reactors for several weeks, and then be tested, frozen down, and sent back to the patient. Now, that entire process is something that can take anywhere from four to six weeks just to get back before they can actually get that therapy. But then on top of that, what we have to do is we give them chemotherapy. We call it lymphodepleting chemotherapy to reduce the number of white blood cells in the body so that we can infuse the ones that we've made. And when we do those two things together, those cells kind of slingshot back into the bloodstream and start dividing and can then engraft, get rid of the cancer and persist. And so it's an incredibly complex process to make it work. There are concerns from the standpoint with patients, always from safety, because these cells can divide very, very quickly. And you can also have challenges where people have release of cytokines as they're busy fighting the cancer. But the real challenge is that when you put all of this together, the amount of time it takes to get these therapies to patients is just often too long because these are patients that have often failed antibody therapies, chemotherapy, surgery. And one thing that these patients just don't have is time. So here's where Exuma Biotech comes in. You say, I, we recognize this process. How do we make it shorter? What have you done? Well, over the last five years, we really started with a premise that if this therapy is going to work for everyone and be applicable, that we needed to look at where the problems were at being able to get it to where patients are largely treated today. So the two things we looked at of a challenge was first, the fact of asking if there was a way to make smarter viral vectors so that those viral vectors could actually do all the work simply in a draw of blood rather than having to go to a factory. And we looked at from the basic premise of how much time a patient can spend in an infusion clinic of where they're normally treated today. 
and realized patients can't stay overnight there. They have to move quickly, you know? So when we looked at this, we said, we need a virus that can get its job done faster and get it done straight in the blood. So we brought in some really smart virologists early on and said, can you figure out how to take these viral vectors that we've known that have good safety, but put additional homing signals in them so that when they just go straight into blood, they can find their way to the white blood cells we want to modify. And can they get that first stage all done in a short period of time? Now, when we started this, the entire you know, literature and everything we'd learned was that this couldn't be done. But we brought a few people in that, that came in from different angles. And after about four years, they came up with a system where all they needed was for that viral vector to go straight into blood and they could get all the modification activity they needed within just a few green tops of blood like you'd have normally done for a peripheral blood draw during routine lab work. So that was really a, one key area of innovation. The other challenge, of course, was if you wanted to get this done quickly, there was no time to do that chemotherapy preparation. Because if you gave someone chemotherapy and you took away all their cells, there's no blood to draw to be able to modify. So we looked there and we said, are there additional genetic information we could put in to these vectors, the viral vectors, that could allow those cells to not only find cancer, but also to expand without that chemotherapy. And so that was another very long science project that until we reached that point of putting A plus B together, we really didn't know if it would work. But those two things have kind of come together really nicely now. And I'd say that that's the core platform of what we're trying to now advance to the next stage, which is making those vectors, those viral vectors in steel tanks, making sure that those materials can be made with high purity and test the safety and get them ready to really be precise so that we can bring them forward to the clinic. Now, let me get this straight. You take all this blood from me, which I've, I've had on occasion. They just keep pulling out. How do you get all that blood out of me? And it has all of my, it has white blood cells in it, the, the kind you're looking for. That's right. That's right. And you then put in this, this viral vector, which you've programmed. You've programmed the virus. You've programmed the genes you want to put in. It's going to have an antibody. It's going to, it's going to do all this stuff. And you just pour it in. And then do you go through some magic? Do you have to like shake it twice, hold it up to the light? I mean, what's the, what happens? <laughs> where's, the, where's the magic here? <laughs> the, actually, the interesting thing was that we started this process where we would try and purify out the white blood cells. But then we actually found that the whole blood that the white blood cells are in can work just fine as its own little incubator when we put the virus in. So literally, the blood doesn't have to be shaken. They simply draw those out, it goes into a little bag, and the virus can go in. And that simply stays for about four hours. And then they catch the white blood cells on a filter and it goes in a syringe that allows you then to give a sub-Q shot under the skin, just like you'd get with a vaccine. And you don't need to make room for it with the chemotherapy, getting rid of the white blood cells because you're going to give more. No. Because this, this was just in your body a couple of hours ago. That's right. And one of the important things when we thought about safety and risk assessment and mitigation you have to think about all the things that could go wrong on something like this first. And, you know, we, we spend most of our time thinking about what could go wrong before we go in and say, 
are we ready to actually test something in patients? But we've built a number of safety measures into the system to ensure that we can control that process. And so what we found is that the injection that goes under the skin, interestingly enough, when your immune system fights off an infection, if you feel under your, your neck when your people say, well, your lymph nodes are swollen, that's often what's happening is that your T cells or a part of your white blood cells that are in there are busy actively dividing because they've been told that there's something for it. But they sit in that lymph node first and they start that process. And then once they've got to a critical mass, they leave that location to go to the blood to find the infection. And what we've found is that when we take the cells from the blood and put it under the skin, that from everything we can see, it looks like they think they're in a lymph node. And so they start that program. And so the nice thing is the expansion and production all happens under the skin. And then they get out into the blood and go do their job to find the cancer. So it takes a couple of weeks for them to reach peak blood levels. But the, the important thing is if this translates well in upcoming studies from clinical trials, the advantage is that these patients that just don't have time, that we could potentially get them active therapy in the patient faster than any other way we can think of. I love this concept of, okay, you put them in there and they're like all talking, we're te- come on team, <laughs> we have stuff to do and they're getting ready and then eventually they get in the bloodstream and they take off. Let's it is go. a team effort. <laughs> you know? I like it. I like this idea. Well, this is an interesting thing. Well, we actually, we spent, you know, a few years where we were trying to put them directly in the bloodstream. And what we found is that when they've been immediately modified with this genetic information, they really don't like to be spread all over the blood. And the doses that we would need, we did calculations that said, this is going to take a lot of blood, more than, than we can get. And then what we found is when we put them under the skin was simply the fact that that location allows them all to kind of work together as a team early on. And it kind of makes them more robust in being able to expand and take off. Okay, I have a couple of questions here, and we can go down any alley you have. Let's sure. Let's start with this. These cells are in my body, and let's say that they've they've gotten rid of every cancer cell I have. They're still in my body. What do they do then? That's a great question. That you know, we think about the element of how long do cells need to stay in the body to get durable, complete remissions. And one of the things that's been learned, even from antibody therapies, is that generally, if you give a therapy that's effective for a particular type of cancer, usually we want them around for six months to a year, if you think about an antibody therapy. And what we learned is if you gave them much longer than that, it wasn't necessarily better. But if you only gave them a dose for maybe a month, it wasn't enough. And so the first thing is making sure those cells can stay long enough to make sure they get rid of every last drop of cancer that has a target. But after that, the important thing we put into our our viral vectors is a little signal on those cells so that if you wanna get rid of them later, we've developed a homing sequence, if you wanna think of it, where you can infuse an antibody that will get rid of them. And so that's an important safety measure. We said, if anything goes wrong, as we look at all the safety provisions we put in place that also could have a benefit that if a patient truly is in a lasting remission and one wants to remove them or needs to be removed for reasons of safety, that you could infuse that and then essentially get rid of those cells that way. 
So it's really a safety factor that's in there. This is so different from the concept of how much dose do I give? Do I give more? Uh, when do I give more? Uh, uh, how much is going to leave the bot? It's like, no, we're, we're sending in a whole team. We're going to keep working and replicating itself. A whole different perspective on what a medicine is. You know, many of us have spent a lot of our lives with biological medicines. We study what's called pharmacokinetics, which is studying both the, the way by which the body eliminates a medicine once it's been given to a patient. In the case of cellular therapies, the fact that you have a living medicine, the complexity of that, of course, is, is very challenging to just assume off the first dose because the cells that you put in can divide. Or if you put in a vector modified cells, one cell can become 10,000 cells. So we study the levels of those cells in the body where we take a blood sample, can find out how many are there, but it's a very important part of monitoring them. And people have actually found that you can trend how a medicine is doing between its peak levels in the blood to when it then comes back down again, but also the element of saying, is it a successful procedure or not? So I would argue that while studying cellular kinetics, as we call that, is complicated from a mathematical modeling system, that people have done a pretty good job at being able to monitor it. And it has given some interesting insights into what we need to target, both from the first in human dose up to the maximum dose we want to administer and how to give them to patients. Okay, now you're looking at going first in human. You went through a bunch of animal studies, one after another, mm -hmm. sometimes in parallel. You're working with the FDA, and you're also working with Moffitt Cancer Center mm -hmm. to do that first patient. This is very serious stuff. What's the strategy, and, and is there a first cancer you're going after? No, it's a great question. The strategy, first and foremost, when you take something new is to get very good control over the materials that you want to test in humans. So the very first thing we focus on is, can we produce something consistently? We call this as product quality, but it really is down to give a level of assurance that we understand exactly what we're going to put in a patient. So there's a lot of work that starts there of growing material up, producing a vector, studying it through lots of different tests and saying, can I make it the same way each time? Once we've established that, we then want to go in and say, how does it function from different systems? So there's certain tests we do where we draw blood. We'll take it from a donor. We'll also take it from a patient that can actually donate their blood at a different stage of disease. And we'll study to make sure is that part working right first from healthy donors and then from patient-derived material to do the best we can possibly do to make sure that we know what we're gonna get when we go do the real trial. But the strategy we started with was to think of this platform and the process of let's start with some targets in B cell malignancies. This is part of non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. And the reason we've started there from a focus is that this is an area of cancer where we've known that the cellular therapies are very well understood. And the goal is to try and be as safe as we can for the first patient that goes in and make sure that we've not left any stones unturned. I'm speaking with Dr. Greg Frost, the CEO of Exuma Biotech. We'll talk more after a break.
podcasts of Tech Nation are available on NPR One, Spotify, and Alexa Podcasts, among others. Direct links are available at technation.com. In the second half of our show, I'll speak with Chris Smith from Eno Respiratory about a spray that just may reduce the incidence and or severity of flu and potentially COVID. Stay with us. Listening to Tech Nation, I've been speaking with Dr. Greg Frost, the CEO of Exuma Biotech, working to reduce the delivery of gene therapy for cancer from eight weeks to four hours. There has to be some part of this in which you understand exactly what the patient's cancer is. What's that link? Well, the first thing that we do is when we look at a B cell related cancer. B cell malignancies or non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. There are, in fact, many subtypes of that. So what we need to study, number one, is the target that we will use to go after them and to both find that cancer, try and understand resistance, but also make sure that we get blood from representative patient populations to ensure that the process is working to make the gene, viral gene vector work in that system. So as we used to say from our laboratories here, we have a lot of work where there's blood coming down the hall many times a week and people go into these sterile labs to go test things. But really what they're focused on is repeating a process and saying, if you change something, if something is different, am I still getting the same level of material out on the other side? So you're studying the populations of these these particular types of cancers so that it doesn't have to be that one person's cancer. If you can see the arc of what it looks like, then you've you've got a medicine that could cover a number of situations. Indeed. Well, I would say that when we work with our antibody components for recognizing particular types of cancer, we have a number of programs that we're working on of what are really focused particularly on what we call solid tumors, which are different things like breast cancer, stomach cancer. And in that case, we have very specific recognition sequences for those types of cancers. Those experiments will likely go after the first ones in B-cell cancers, but we study them in all of these settings to say, if we can get the right homing sequence for each one, the objective in the end is you can take as many different targets as you need to make sure you can cover 
every type of patient that we want. So you take away the chemotherapy, which you don't want to wish on anyone, much less someone this seriously ill, um, and you go from four to six weeks to create these down to four hours. I mean, that's a, that is like, that's, that's out of a novel. I mean, it's like, there's just no, the, the reduction in the scale of magnitude is, is amazing. Uh, but you know, this has been a signature with you, this, this reduction of time to deliver medication. I'd like to talk about your earlier company, Halozyme, which continues on, is doing great work. Tell us about what its purpose was and what it's doing today. Well, that was a, uh, you know, my experience from founding Halozyme in the late nineties through, uh, the early days and processes of technology is something that I have such fond memories of as a company. Um, but that element, as we used to joke, when I uh, left from UCSF, as I joked, I said, you know, Halozyme was the longest postdoc on record um, of working with enzymes. But the application of those enzymes that we use there was something that at the time was considered very different. And so the express purpose there was that antibody therapies that we had were often infused over very long periods of time. And what we learned was that an antibody therapy like rituxan or Herceptin could take many, many hours to be infused. And what we wanted to do was rather than giving that as a long IV infusion, to simply mix it with something that could allow larger volumes to simply be injected under the skin. And the objective was very simple, which was we could save an incredible amount of time for patients and providers and create healthcare efficiency as a result. And so I think that element from speed where initially we said we can get from eight hours to five minutes, physicians could spend more time treating patients on other things, but also could dramatically reduce uh, the healthcare burden to society and be able to get medicine so that patients could spend less time in infusion clinics and more time out doing what they'd like to be doing. So that general process, I would say, of why did we think of trying to make something more efficient? Oftentimes, we only think about things in the context of safety and efficacy. But this element of applying science to efficiency in medicine is something I've always been attracted to, because sometimes you have to sit back and you look at how Physicians are practicing medicine and delivering care. And sometimes you look and go, this is a really effective therapy. But when you found something really effective, there's a natural inclination to say, how do we make this easier for people? And so that's something I think as we look at the cellular therapy stage today with CAR-T, we say, well, getting from eight hours to five minutes is really impactful on the antibody space. But if we can make cellular therapies go from being eight weeks to four hours, that sort of impact has additional benefit that I think that uh, could be really meaningful, but could also allow this therapy to realize the true potential of it in many areas where it cannot be used today. And in the Halozyme case, I know they're working with a number of uh, big pharmaceutical companies. Who are they working with? What are they, what are they doing? Well, there are a large number of different companies that work with them to take their antibody and biologic-based therapies to administer products sub-Q or under the skin as shots. And that's really been Halozyme's model with some very good companies. The very early ones, which were with Roche, Genentech, 
um, with Pfizer, with Baxter, a large number of different companies where they would go in and find technology to enable the one thing they developed to be able to help lots of different uh, companies take products and make them easier. Obviously, Halozyme's model working with partners to help enable them to do biological delivery under the skin is something that the very first programs with things like Herceptin for breast cancer subcutaneously or Rituximab subcutaneously were some of the very early programs, but some of these now have been launched in over 100 countries around the world. Well, Greg, thank you so much. I, I hope you'll come back and talk to us again. Well, thanks so much, Maureen, for all the great questions. My guest today is Dr. Greg Frost, the chairman and CEO of Exuma Biotech, headquartered in West Palm Beach, Florida. More information is available at exumabio.com. That's Exuma, E-X-U-M-A, exumabio.com. Whether it's the flu or it's COVID, we often contract these viruses by breathing them in or touching our face with the virus entering the nasal passageway. Why wouldn't we try to challenge these viruses right at the point of entry? Dr. Chris Smith is the Investment Director Melbourne with Brandon Capital Partners and a member of the board of ENA Respiratory in Melbourne, Australia. Well, Chris, welcome back to the program. Thank you very much, Moira. Really, uh, really pleased to be back again. Well, you know, so many of us now have taken COVID tests. And if you have, you know the drill. You know, they get out the swabs, they go deep in your nasal passage, they go to the back of your throat. There's a reason for that. Tell us why. Well, uh, COVID-19 is a respiratory virus. And most of the infection and where the virus grows and replicates is in your upper respiratory tract, in that nasal cavity, which extends from your nose all the way to the back of your throat. And so the reason they swab there is because that's where the virus is. It's really important to keep that in mind because like so many ventures in the biotech field, before COVID arrived on the scene, Ena Respiratory was working on a very different approach to fighting the flu. And then along came COVID. What was Ena trying to do with the flu and how did it pivot for COVID? So Ena Respiratory has been trying to develop a medicine for people that get flu every year, but where they don't just get over the disease. And you all would have heard, you know, of people getting flu and ending up in hospital. You know, people that are elderly, people that for some reason don't have an immune system, um, or people with uh, COPD, things like emphysema and those sorts of things, uh, which are very common now. And for, for regular healthy people, flu can be awful, but usually uh, we it self-resolves. We usually get over it. But for a lot of people, that's not the case, and they can end up in intensive care. Uh, and, in fact, um, you know, thousands of people are actually dying every year from, from flu infections. So Ena Respiratory was looking for a solution to try and prevent people getting viral infections and these viral respiratory infections that can be so uh, bad for these patients. And so the company was established, but it had to tackle the problem in a completely new way. We wanted a medicine that could work on not just influenza virus from this year, but from any year. So unlike the vaccine, we didn't want to make it every year. We knew that we had to prevent 
the infection from really taking hold in the first place and stop it getting down into the lungs and where it really causes uh, a problem. And we knew that it had to work on people that didn't have a really good immune system anymore, that acquired immune system, where our antibodies come from and the thing that takes time and the thing that vaccines work on. Because we know as we get older and we know as uh, if we've got a poor immune system, they don't work so great. So that was our challenge. That was the need that was out there. And so Ena Respiratory was born from that need. And, and the solution was to stop trying to make something that targets the virus itself because they vary so much and they change so, so fast and it's like trying to hit a moving target. But the, the, the strategy was to actually target the people and tap in to a primal immune system. That's called our innate immune system. We share this with um, essentially all animals, even very simple animals uh, like bacteria have innate immune systems and try and boost that as a way of getting people ready and in a position where they can fight the infection before it even comes along. Uh, And that's what Ena Respiratory was born from. So Ena Respiratory, their product is called Ena 51 and that medicine is designed as a spray something similar to what you'd uh, buy at the pharmacy and that spray bottle we envisage you'd give yourself a spray in your nostrils once a week maybe twice a week and that would trigger your immune system your innate immune system to be ready to fight a viral infection it's a pre-warning system to tell your body to get ready because something may be coming. And the idea there is, is that you, you want to be able to tell the immune system something's coming but not be, not be too inflammatory um, because obviously that would cause some of the problems that we see with uh, flu in the first place. So getting that balance has been really, really important as well and has come from the work uh, originally from the University of Melbourne and the Hunter Medical Research Institute in Newcastle, both in, in Australia, uh, just to really work on this technology. And it's come from well over 10 years of research and now five years of Ena Respiratory to really home, home in on getting that balance right. Well, you say that it's sending a message to your innate immune system, like little tiny text messages. What, kind of, what, what do you mean sending a message? Yeah, yeah, exactly. That's a, that's a good question. What does a message look like? Now, obviously, it's not done by text. Um, your, our bodies have adapted over um, thousands of years to recognize pathogens. Uh, when you apply the medicine, it thinks that there's an infection coming. And, uh, and we use that. So we use, it's called a pattern recognition receptor and they're on the cells of all, uh, on the surface of all of our cells. Uh, and we're using that as a way of priming. So along came COVID. So along came COVID. Yeah. And, um, and, and for inner respiratory, uh, unlike, um, so, so much of the rest of the biotechnology community where we had to try and adapt, um, Ena Respiratory was already developing a medicine for respiratory viral infections. And, um, and so it was a case then of testing to see whether uh, Ena 51 uh, could prime our immune system in a way that protected against COVID. Uh, and that uh, is more difficult than it might sound. You know, it, COVID came, we weren't expecting it. Not many people work on coronaviruses. 
and so for that reason, the world has had an amazing response to generate the vaccines that we've that we've made and to try and understand the research. Uh, the first thing you have to do with uh, with any of these developments for human medicines is to test them in animals, and we did that with Public Health England uh, in what is regarded as the the one of the gold standard uh, models of respiratory infection, and that is the ferret. They're um, certainly a um, uh, a species that gets used for respiratory infection um, research quite a bit, uh, and it's really important that we can show in in those animals that we're effective in reducing the amount of virus. And so, uh, amazingly, in in those in the models, and it, and it performed, to be honest, far better than we our best our uh, best expectations. We were able to reduce the amount of uh, COVID-19 virus in those animals by 96% um, by pre-treating with our medicine. So what that means is that, you know, if as a human, what we're hoping is that if if you use the nasal spray, uh, if you get exposed to virus, the virus will be uh, restricted and essentially um, stopped in its tracks before it gets to take hold in your nose and the back of your throat, which is where the virus takes hold in the first place. And that's really important because it's when the virus starts in your nose and we all know that there's this incubation period of four to six days where the virus gets into your cells in your nose and your throat, starts to replicate and then is released and then starts to spread into your lungs and those sorts of things. You need to stop it there, and especially for the vulnerable people, especially for the old people. You trying to um, trying to treat people after the fact that they've already had you know, already got a large infection and it's already spread to their lungs and spread to their uh, cardiovascular system to their blood. You know, is probably going to be too late, and it's not ideal. No one wants to be in intensive care and then get a therapy. You want to stop it before it even starts. And and that's the that's the plan for Inner 51 to really try and help that, that process. Now let's get back to the ferrets. Uh, I know that they can carry the COVID virus, but basically it doesn't affect them. So you had a set of ferrets, some number of ferrets, and... Uh, what did you do from there? How did the how did the test go? How did you test them? Yeah, so you're right. Um, the ferrets don't get sick from COVID nineteen. They're like a, a healthy um, young human who uh, can be an asymptomatic carrier of COVID nineteen. So uh, they represent those um, those sorts of people. The, the way it works is you give them a medicine or you give them a placebo, uh, and then you infect in the nose uh, with purified virus. Um, obviously, this is done in very, very strict and controlled environments, which is why um, we got to work with the the amazing experts at Public Health England. And it's very difficult you know, to do these experiments. Okay, so let me understand this. You have a group of ferrets, all of whom are COVID-free. You spray some number of them with uh, a placebo. You spray the rest of them with the Ena spray, and then after that, you administer a high dose of COVID virus to all of them, like right in their nose, mm-hmm. right in their nasal passages. That that's spot on. That's exactly right. And then and then we wait a few days, 
and you see what happens. You do the ferrets, does the virus infect the ferrets and do they start to make more virus that can then obviously infect other ferrets or uh, be, or be spread to uh, other animals uh, if it was a human? Uh, or does it actually reduce the amount of virus? And what we showed was that if, if uh, the ferrets had had inner 51, uh, they had 96%, I'll just repeat that, they had 96% less virus than if they hadn't been treated. To put that in perspective, the data that we've seen around some of the vaccines is that they essentially have very little to no effect on the amount of virus that you have in your upper respiratory tract, which controls that spread and infection. So now we turn to humans. And the first thing, of course, you have to do is phase one, um, where you administer it to healthy humans and make sure that there's no severe side effects and understand the dosage, uh, which is expected to go well. So you're planning phase two. What what are you going to do in phase two? So a phase two study um, uh, with COVID-19 is uh, uh, it's quite new to our uh, research community, how we design those trials. But there is a, a design that's called a, a post-exposure prophylaxis study. So that means we are going to do a clinical study with people that we think may have been exposed or are a close contact of someone who has COVID-19. And to those people who are essentially in that six, seven, eight-day waiting period wondering whether or not they're going to come up positive. So they've been exposed. It's those people that will be treated with inner 51 or with a placebo, and we will see in those people whether or not the drug can protect them and reduce the amount of virus that they go on um, to produce and and keep them disease-free and symptom-free. How frequently do you think they'll be spraying? That will depend on the results of the phase one clinical trial, which is about to start. Uh, we we anticipate, though, it would be once a week or maybe up to twice a week. So that will be, and that's self-administered? Yeah. Yep. Yeah, so just uh, for the audience, this is a, a very simple um, product. You know, it's it. we talk about the vaccines and some of the RNA vaccines that require minus 70, minus 80 degrees transport. That's This is not what we're envisaging here. This is a, a very convenient nasal spray. Maybe you keep it in your fridge, um, but it's very stable. And it's also more like a traditional, um, a standard medicine that you'd take uh, from your pharmacy and in the, the sense that it's, it's not a vaccine. Uh, it's what we call a small molecule. And so it has all the attributes of that. We can manufacture in enormous quantities uh, without having to make huge manufacturing facilities. We can distribute and transport uh, far more like a standard medicine. Um, And that was one of the requirements um, we had when we first uh, established the company and wanted to pursue this as a technology was it has to be convenient and it has to be available for everybody uh, and that's been a really critical component to the design of Inner 51 in the first place. The treatment that you're talking about, spraying in the nasal passages, it's no different than the one that you were developing for the flu? Yeah. 
This is a really important point, Moira, that you've hit on there. No, it's not. It's exactly the same. And so our uh, the medicine works by triggering the the pattern recognition receptors on the human, not on the virus itself. So there's nothing about the medicine that makes it specific for a virus. It's specific for us as the humans and it boosts our immune system so that we can get all of our immune artillery ready to fight so that the virus, when it comes in, doesn't hijack control of ourselves and make more of itself. That's what the virus is trying to do. But what we do by pre-warning them is to make sure that that doesn't happen. So because we're targeting the human, the human didn't change whether we were targeting flu virus or coronavirus. It also doesn't matter if we're talking about the original COVID-19 strain uh, or we anticipate any of the variants our medicine will work in exactly the same way. And, and so this is one of the real attributes that we see for this medicine going forward because COVID-19 is changing, right? And we are anticipating that there's going to be variants that are, that are uh, where the vaccines are less effective and there are going to pe- be people that don't respond to the vaccines and so we'll need something like this. But also one of the commitments I think everybody in the world has now is to make sure this never happens again, right? We don't want to go through a pandemic like this again and we need medicines and tools to help us do that. And so one thing about Inner 51, because it's not specific for a virus, um, uh, what that means is that we can have it and we can stockpile it and be ready to make sure that a pandemic like virus like this um, never gets out of control again. Often when we think about phase two trials, they last months, years, takes a long time. If you're just trying to see if this spray reduces the COVID-19, reduces the virus in the nasal passages, that shouldn't take very long. No, and others have shown that with a study which is a post-exposure prophylaxis study um, with with a few hundred, 600 people, these studies can be done in under three, four months. So it's very quick. And the reason for that, the unfortunate reason for that is because there's so much COVID-19 infection around. So the attack rate is very high. Um, but that's a benefit. That's a benefit for when we're making medicines like we're making now. We can certainly imagine that reducing the viral loads in the nose would reduce the ability of a person to spread virus, you know, touch your nose, shake somebody's hand, etc. We know how that all works. But do we know if we will reduce the severity of COVID once someone has contracted the virus? Do we know that that anything about that yet? We don't. We haven't done the clinical trials as yet, and we will wait to see the data. What we do know, though, is that um, from lots of work that's already been done in record time is that COVID-19 is a upper respiratory virus infection. So it affects your nose and your throat initially. And then it'll start to transmit down into the lungs and then go systemic. It's, it's, it's quite a sequential process. 
Uh, and so the the thinking uh, that we have is that by restricting the amount of virus is that you will you'll address that and your body will be able to not be inundated with a really large amount of virus. A key component to how we're going to treat COVID-19 in the future is not going to come down to just a vaccine or just in a 51 or just an antiviral. Clinicians and the population, we need all of these things if we're going to beat a pandemic like the one we have now, especially with a virus which is an RNA virus like coronavirus, because it will adapt and it will change and we need multiple ways to address this. So, Moira, the the focus now is really on that phase two study. The design will need to take in around four to 600 people. Now, they will only need medicine for a couple of weeks, uh, but that will mean that it takes us around about six months to fully do that study. Well, Chris, thank you so much. We really appreciate it. And uh, I hope you come back and and update us on, on exactly what happened. I'm looking forward to doing that, and uh, I really hope we can report on some positive data. Dr. Chris Smith is Investment Director Melbourne with Brandon Capital Partners and a member of the board of Ena Respiratory in Melbourne, Australia. More information is available at enarespiratory.com. That's E-N-A, Ena, enarespiratory.com. For Tech Nation, I'm Moira Gunn. Tech Nation and its regular segment, Biotech Nation, are produced at the studios of KQED-FM in San Francisco. Executive producer is Matt Gardner. The director of technical production is Monte Carlos. And audio engineers include Howard Gelman, Seal Muller, and Larry Upton. Our theme music was composed by Ann Nochtrieb Zessiger and Robert Powell, with title creation provided by NameLab Incorporated of San Francisco. Program information and Internet audio is available on the web at technation.com. Tech Nation and Biotech Nation are productions of Tech Nation Media. I'm Paul Lancor.